how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Originally, Neil Cross wanted to be a novelist. Describing his path as wandering and even as an accident, he's published several books, but is best known for his work on the small screen, where he's got credits for MI5, Doctor Who, Crossbones, Luther, and now The Mosquito Coast. Cross said he grew up an admirer of Han Solo, but more specifically, the anti-hero. In The Mosquito Coast, the apparent anti-hero is Ali Fox, played by Justin Thoreau, and Harrison Ford in the original 1986 film, which comes from author Paul Thoreau, who is actually Justin's uncle. The basic plot is a bit of a mystery, listed as an idealist uproots his family and moves them to Latin America. In this interview, Cross talks his obsession with anti-heroes, writing yourself into a corner, how to adapt characters to modern times, creating a non-traditional writer's room, hiring candid writers, and which episode was originally cut due to COVID that might end up in season two. The truth is that it's not an ambition I ever harbored. I never, I never one morning woke up and thought, you know, hey, I'd love to write for the screen. Um, because the, the, the place that I grew up geographically and culturally was so impossibly distant from that concept and that idea that it literally just never occurred to me. So I know this sounds vaguely Chaplin-esque and comical, but I kind of fell into it like a manhole. Um, or what I did want to be, which in itself was was considered to be, you know, by my family and, and my kind of peer group to be in itself a kind of an absurd ambition. What I really wanted to be was a novelist. And I did kind of set out on a, on a, a defiant path to become a novelist. And uh, which is something which I, you know, finally achieved that kind of goal of becoming a, a published novelist. And it was, um, that led me, you know, through a, a wandering, wandering path and less traveled roads and so on and so forth to, to writing something for the screen. It was kind of an accident. And then 
once I was given the opportunity to, to write something for the screen, I found out that I, I really enjoyed it. So it was a discovery. Do you see kind of where television is today? It's pretty close to a novel. I mean, do you see these long form dramas in that same sense? I mean, you just did the first season of this show is seven episodes. I mean, it's kind of its own story in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think um, long form storytelling as we have it now is, is, is driving the literary novel towards something not unakin to cultural irrelevance. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time that, you know, the, the cultural conversation, as it were, was about a book. Mm. Yeah, you know, a good book or a bad book or a controversial book, um, a novel of, sometimes there's conversations about novelists as kind of celebrities, mm. but the text itself seems to be becoming culturally irrelevant, which is, you know, not necessarily permanent and certainly not necessarily for the best, but absolutely at the moment, yeah. So you've worked on uh, Luther, Mosquito Coast, uh, Crossbones. Do you see a connection in hindsight to your work? Do you see a specific genre or style that your work fits into, or do you see every project is differently? Uh, Nick Cave once said something in an not no, I was in the same room as him. I read it. <laughs> um, uh, the, someone asked him the question about how you know his work had evolved from this kind of savage thrash of, of the early 80s to this kind of gothic crooner of the, of the 2000s. You know, and he said that um, thematically he was chained to the same bucket of vomit. Um, and I feel pretty much the same in that my taste uh, hasn't changed since I was five or six years old. I mean, I, I was one of the kids, you know, my favourite character was, was Han Solo. Uh, and I've always favored you know at best the rogue more often the kind of the anti-hero that sometimes the flat out villainous and it's a a taste the origin of which is a mystery to me but i'm thematically chained to so i can i can see that running through everything that i've written on the screen and on the page how did you get involved with Mosquito Coast? And kind of tell us the origin story. I think it was a Harrison Ford movie before, but tell us how this all came to be. Well, it was, um, I'm a lifelong fan of Paul Theroux. I keep trying to find a different word than fan and I cannot find one. I was going to say reader and that's so kind of dry and academic and, and self-aggrandizing. So I am a lifelong fan of Paul Theroux. I read The Great Railway Bazaar when I was about 14 and then the Mosquito Coast. And I've read, I think, every word that Paul Theroux has ever published, and I've reread most of them, and I've reread some of them multiple, multiple times. Um, and so when, oh, and in addition to which, if there exists on the face of the earth a bigger and more devoted fan of Harrison Ford than me, I would like to meet them. And if I did, I would have to fight them for the, you know, for the crown. Um, nobody loves Harrison Ford more than I do. And, um, and it seems to me that, that the Peter Weir uh, Mosquito Coast movie of 84 or 85 or whatever, in terms of kind of straight adaptation of the novel was, was definitive. Mm -hmm. So when a friend, my great friend Dante Di Loretto at, at Fremantle, North America, knowing that I was a fan of Paul Theroux, said, you know, hey, what about the Mosquito Coast? Um, my reaction was just to say, no. <laughs> like, uh, hard no 
absolutely not what next uh but you know uh through uh artfulness and uh and uh, uh adept techniques they taught me around tell me about this character that justin thoreau is playing um i would kind of describe him as like the flawed smartest guy in the room he's he's also written as an idealist but how do you see this character and also, how do you think about combining empathy with this mystery that he's wrapped up in? We don't really know where he's from, what's going on. We just know he's a problem solver. Tell me a little about this character. I, I really like the, the, the idea of him being the flawed, smartest guy in the room. I've not been able to articulate it like that. Um, that's, I'm going to write that down and use it later on. Okay. Uh, uh, and also, you know, he, he is driven by this compulsion to l- make everybody know he's the smartest guy in the room, mm-hmm. which is... Um, well, the truth is that that uh, he existed first of all on on the page of the novel, and like all kind of great literary creations, that character exists on two different levels. And on on one level, Ali Fox is a kind of an exemplar of a of a of an American archetype, the great American contrarian, the rejectionist. He's he's Yossarian, he's Randall McMurphy, he's he's any number of Americans uh, whose basic philosophy is an extended middle finger. Uh, But also in the specifics on the page, uh, he's a character who belongs to a very specific set of political, historical, cultural and economic circumstances. He's late 70s, early 80s, he's post Watergate, post oil shock, post Vietnam. So the alley in the book is, is really kind of a, a, a disappointed middle-aged libertarian hippie. Uh, and kind of ironically, given the, you know, given the home that we have for our show, I think he belongs very much uh, psychologically and historically and culturally to, to Steve Jobs' generation. And you can actually see that there was a version of a, of, of a young alley tinkering with a primitive computer in someone's garage. Uh, so the first challenge really was to think, well, who would that guy be now? Mm-hmm. If you took somebody with all of those attributes um, and moved him to 20, what year do we live in? 2021, whatever year we're in right now, um, which has, as some people might have noticed, it's its own set of cultural, political, economic, and political problems. So who would he be now? That was, yeah, and I don't think you can, you can simply kind of copy and paste any more than you can take, you know, Oliver Twist and copy and paste him into 21st century London. There has to be, there has to be a way to, to take the essential attributes and, um, and, and explore and examine uh, how that guy interacts with the moment. What are the difficulties of writing a character like this? Do you, do you typically think of the problem first, figure out the solution, or do you research to like, oh, he could use this for something because he's got a line in episode four, this could fit anywhere where he just says, there's always something. And that's kind of his philosophy. So yeah. what's the difficulties of, of that in the writer's room of like, we've got to make another problem for this guy and he's got to figure it out. Well, my basic, I've got, a, I've got a very, I think uh, a writer's room would probably describe it as a very inside out way of, of 
writing, which is the first, I first of all think of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, and then think about how the specific character would react to that specific problem. So usually it's problem first. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that kind of, uh, that kind of, there's always a solution. That line of Alex is also a line of mine because I, I write such that I get myself, I write myself into corners. I get myself stuck. Um, you know, I, I, I get on my knees and I pound my forehead against the floor, wondering why I do it to myself. Uh, but it's a, it, it's a, uh, not inspiring. It's a compelling way to write because I get up in the morning and I don't know what the hell I'm going to do that day. Mm -hmm. And that's an attribute which I largely share with Ali, although I'm unable to, you know, to nail two pieces of wood together, let alone disassemble an engine. How do you tackle those problems separately? So I'm sure you can't talk about this, but I see you got a credit for Escape from New York and you've also got a lot of television work. So if you're writing alone versus with the writer's room, how do you tackle these problems in different ways? I don't work with a writer's room in the traditional way. Mm -hmm. Truth. I, I find um, writer's rooms are supremely efficient television making machines but i think that the machine which they represent is a model of making television which is essentially dying on its ass writers rooms work best when you're making you know 24 episodes a year mm. i think um and i find a traditional writers room for you know a, a, a what was going to be a nine episode season i find it in fact to be inefficient mm. Um, and to slow things down and you know and and uh i am a, a benign dictator but i am a dictator i'm a control freak about this stuff so what i like to do is to provide the room with you know with a, a two three page outline of a given episode and then work this is my preference and it doesn't always work but when it does it it's it's, uh, it's efficient and it's fun. It is to work essentially Socratically with a given writer. So to, to, you know, to choose a N writer to write a given episode and just to work one-on-one -on -one with them. And if we get stuck, then to throw it to, you know, to a room. So the, the, the actual physical writer's room of Mosquito Coast was, was a week and a half. And really, it's just it's sitting in a room, getting to know each other, eating some, you know, Twizzlers, uh, drinking too much coffee, and and then uh, and then atomizing and going off and, and working in subgroups. So, what did you look for, maybe, when you're bringing in writers? Because I know it's different. It used to be that you know, there's a Seinfeld script, a West Wing script, whatever. Now, I think it's gone back to more original works. But what were you looking for? For writers of something like this where you're, you need problem solvers and that type of thing what were you looking for in these auditions or screenplays this is going to sound hopelessly naive and unprofessional but i am i think naive and unprofessional but this is what i was looking for most of all was people that i enjoy talking to and working mm -hmm. with because um, so much um so much of value simply comes from conversation and that conversation involves a, a, a certain amount of mutual respect, but it also um, requires, I think, or certainly benefits from a certain amount of mutual disrespect. I need somebody to be able to look me in the eye and say, that's a fucking terrible idea. 
because deep down you know when you've got a terrible idea and you, and you can you know and you can express all of the cant which is you know well we have to you know good ideas come from stupid ideas and all of the cliches uh, and all of which is true but actually you need somebody to be able to look you in the eye and say really <laughs> but that's what and and I take I take the show seriously, and I take um, the scripts very seriously, and I take the viewers very seriously. I do not take myself seriously because mm. I make up stories for a living, and so I, I need yeah I, I need somebody who's able to you know gently push me, question me, make me you know weep with self hatred and huddle in the corner with my head in my hands. That's all. Very <laughs> Tell me a little about the the style of the show. I had a, a friend text me the other day and asked me, what do they call that thing? Where I guess it's like a cold open and you kind of do a teaser. So like, what is that? A, is there a name for that? I think it, I've saw Breaking Bad do it. I've seen movies like Layer Cake kind of just preview a little thing where you don't know what it is. What What is that? And how do you kind of wrap that into the story? Do you know, I've got no idea what you call it. <laughs> Not at all. Um, uh, there, there's lots... There's lots and lots and lots of technical stuff that I just simply do not know. Right. Um, uh, not not least to do with you know with you know I, I couldn't tell you what a second act turning point was to save my life. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just I used to work on a, a British spy show uh, which was called Spooks in the UK and MI5 in the US, mm -hmm. and they had a great editorial attitude, which is you can use any technique you want to tell a story. We can have flash forwards. If you want to use a dream sequence, knock yourself out, although we never did. You know, you can have flashbacks. You can have, you know, you, you, uh, you can use framing devices, whatever you need to tell your story in the most arresting and interesting way, do that. There are no rules. So that's the basic approach. And kind of, and there is a little bit of me, which is, you know, oh, that would just be cool. I would want to, I want to see, I want to see, you know, I want to see taxidermy shot <laughs> in slow motion because I think it would look great. Well, let's kind of add to the, it is a mysterious show. We don't know what they're running from. We're more like in present day um, and that type of thing. Do you have people you consult with that aren't writers? I mean, I can't even think of any way where you might give something away, but are there any parts where you're like, oh, should we say this or not? Or should I have an, a third party read this to make sure the mystery is still there? Do you think about things in that way or not really? I do think about it. And, and in the past, I have used kind of various advisors. In, in fact, on that same show, um, MI5, we had um, advisors, both ex-CIA and ex-KGB. And, uh, and they were fascinating people to spend time with in the pub and you have a couple of beers and they tell you a few stories. Uh, and then after you've known them for a bit, you start to reflect on the fact that actually these people are spies and it's literally their job to lie. Mm. So, so <laughs> what's the point of getting any you know, advice from them? So um, what I will tend to do is make things up and once I've made something up, I will support it with kind of uh, post facto research. You know, you kind of, you, you make a statement or you make a claim or you introduce a little bit of tradecraft and you might get kind of troubled by it and I will then do research. And if I can't find the answer, then I will consult with somebody either, you know, uh, either one of the writers or we will bring in a consultant. 
So you guys uh, just got picked up for season two. Was was season one always planned to be very linear in the way that it is? And do you kind of see that going forward as well? Uh, that's an interesting question. I and mean, the answer is no. Um, season one was going to be a little longer. We got interrupted because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's... Uh, in its bones, it's linear mm-hmm. because what it does is it apes, uh, it, it apes a travel narrative. So, so every every episode is a different uh, chapter of a travel book. You know, desert, the hacienda, Mexico City, um, and it's a that's a kind of nod to to the work of Paul Theroux in its own way. However, um, we did have designed into it a dog leg where to go back to what I said before about using any technique which you want to use, we did have uh, an episode which took place in the past where we answered a few questions. And that might be something which we revisit in season two. But that was a, that was a casualty of COVID. Right. How do you also think about, is, is this story in your mind mainly the families revolving around Ali Fox or do you see kind of the protagonist of the episode shifting a little bit there's a point kind of not to give things away but in the middle where you're like oh is the is the mother actually the villain or you know or or that type of thing it's very interesting was that always an idea or do you kind of see them like orbiting around Allie, or do you see a shift in the narrative that way no i mean that that's um uh that's a very acute question and again that was a very deliberate contrivance and that ali himself the main character sees himself, as many of us do, as being the main character in his own life. And, and he sees the people around him as orbiting him. Mm-hmm. And, and his daughter, Dina herself says, and you know, in, in episode two, I think, you don't, you don't need a family, you need an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the, one of the aspects I enjoyed most of all of writing season one is exactly as you say, is, is to begin to reveal each of the other family members in their own right and to suggest that they each have, you know, not just their own wants, desires and needs, but their own story. And one of the, one of the um, uh, axes that I wanted to shift is our assumption at the beginning, which again is a deliberate contrivance that, that Margot is Ali's acolyte and essentially a little passive, maybe someone who follows in the wake of her kind of charismatic, Mm -hmm. uh, forward moving husband. Um, And then make the audience, as we move through the season, begin to reconsider that assumption and maybe even begin to question whether or not Margot might in fact be the dominant one in that relationship. You think about the way they react with each other, um, the, the the main couple, do you see a shift in that over time? Because in the first one, you're like, well, is this just love that she's following him after whatever reason? She's got this connection with her parents still. She's got kids. It's so complicated. Do you see that like, okay, this episode, they're kind of like this. This episode, they're more, do you think about those emotional beats in that regard on the, on the full arc of the series? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it's, Part of the one of the main uh, one of the main imperatives and compulsions behind the way that we kind of structured the idea of, of the arc, for lack of a better word, is that we're going to 
properly and kind of in a grown up, but also sometimes dumb way, dumb advisedly, uh, explore the nature of that marriage and ask some questions about it and, 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 and reveal that, you know, like probably every marriage that ever was, it's much more kind of complex, much more dynamic and much more shifting than an external observer might assume. And that, that stuff's fun. And like I say, you know, the real, the real question in, in this marriage is which of them ultimately is dominant. And, uh, and it's not Ali. <laughs> I, think, I think we begin to see that. Right. Do you think um, TV has kind of changed in the sense that we really need to know all four of these characters where it's easier to get rid of the family for writing wise? I mean, he could just be a guy out there now, but it wouldn't be as hard to do these things. Like even... When I think when they translated the Jason Bourne books to movies, they killed off his family. Even though he had a family in the book, stuff like that. Do you kind of see that the same way? Like it, it makes it way more complicated, and that's more juicy for television. Yeah, I mean, it, but it is also way more complicated. I mean, it's Justin will Justin talks about this much better than I. But one of the one of the main uh, kind of narrative challenges in season one is not only do we have four main characters those four main characters are in most scenes together mm. uh and being able to uh, uh to reflect the complexity of that dynamic without becoming confusing or repetitive mm. and kind of adhering to some extent at least to, to the to the rules of drama was incredibly challenging it was incredibly and that's where you know that's where kind of working one-on-one -on -one with writers pays great dividends um, because there's there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of algebra involved in in that kind of discourse on screen it's 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 tough but it is rewarding how do you guys think about the environment for episode because like you said it does kind of change with each episode it's drastically different and i think in three they're in the desert and four they're kind of in a cartel type scenario how do you think about that in terms of like I guess, is it always ways to interfere with the character or, you know, hurt or propel the character? How do you think about environment in that way? Uh, hurt, is a, hurt is a great word, yeah. I think, you know, I, I've got this, this uh, weirdly vengeful, <laughs> weirdly vengeful approach to, to people that I make up. And that I want to, I want, I want to see them go through stuff. And it's, it, it's an aesthetic more than a dramatic choice. It's just a, a, a form of storytelling that, that I enjoy. So yeah, so my, my basic kind of, uh, my basic narrative approach is what can we do to them next? And, it, and it's that kind of, that, yeah, and it's subjecting them to different kinds of pressure in different environments allows you to, um, to see different aspects of the character, you know? Is I, any of that a weird compulsion with me. I just want to, I want to just put them through different kinds of hell every time. We'll just do a couple more. Does that, um, does any of that change? I mean, you, I, I don't think you can really change the linear process of the story that you couldn't move one episode before the other. It wouldn't make sense. So you, you just kind of, when you decide to reveal that part of the character, it's based on the environment for that particular episode, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, uh, that was, uh, again, that was uh, that was a kind of function of the contrivance of it as a travel narrative. Mm -hmm. It's like so we knew where you know the story had to go, and 
where the foxes had to go mirrored where the story had to go, if mm. that makes sense. Right. Um, so um, Ali might need, well, he did. Episode five, Ali needs a thing. I won't mm. go into what thing Ali needs. And, it, you know, so there was just a, a, a very um, dispassionate kind of examination of, okay, where is he going to be when he goes to find this thing? And you think, mm. well, you know, he's been through the desert and he's been through, you know, the wilderness. And then he's been to the, that hacienda, which represents kind of decadent civilization, as it were. And, you know, the one place that we haven't seen either him or the family is an enormous metropolis. So let's send Ali to the enormous metropolis to get the thing. So yeah, so the the first of all comes the uh, the requirement of the story, then comes the environment that the story takes place in, and then you can kind of start to drill down into the specifics. And of course, the the metropolis that was most readily available to us was Mexico City, which is an extraordinary place. Hmm. If you were, I know you kind of when you started your career, you were thinking more about writing novels, but if you were starting today and wanted to break in as, as a screenplay writer or get into television, how might you begin? Where would you start? Do you know what? I'm slightly scared of that question because the truth <laughs> is I have no idea. And when, and when I speak to, I mean, not least I, I don't live in LA and at some level, well, at a major level, really, I don't properly understand how it works. Uh, I know uh, a lot of young people kind of go through film school and such, and that seems to be, you know, a really uh, a fruitful approach to getting into the industry. But it's also very, very alien to me. And when I do speak to, you know, people with uh, a bit less hair or a bit more gray hair about how they got into the industry. It seems to me that everybody's got a different story. Mm. There seems to be from an outsider's perspective, and I'm very much an outsider in, in the industry, um, but from an outsider's perspective, there doesn't seem to me to be a, a, a single model for doing it other than the kind of um, rocky cliches of of take your knocks, get over, you know, it, it, if you can if you can stop, stop because it, clearly it's incredibly tough uh, and it's vicious and it's Darwinian and you know I have in my time there encountered quite a lot of what I would characterize as psychopaths, not in the writers' room, but in the others' room, in the other rooms that employ writers. Um, so it seems to me that, that what is most required, and this is not a satisfying answer, and I'm aware that I'm spouting cliches, even as I spout the cliches, is that the world is full of people who want to stop you doing this shit. It's full of structures that want to stop you doing this shit. Um, even people at your own level want to stop you doing this shit because they want the shit that you want to get. Um, and it seems to me that the only real way to address it is that if you really want it just to keep going. But I'm aware that that is probably really terrible advice. But, but because, you know, it, it is, it's, it's, it's vicious and it's thankless and it's, um, and it's Darwinian. Wow.
Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.